Section Zero of the Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Four, edited by Charles F. Horn, Rositer Johnson, and John Rudd. An outline narrative. Tracing briefly the causes, connections, and consequences of the great events, from the fall of Rome to the empire of Charlemagne. Charles F. Horn Our modern civilization is built up on three great cornerstones, three inestimably valuable heritages from the past. The Greco-Roman civilization gave us our arts and our philosophies, the basis of intellectual power. The Hebrews bequeathed to us the religious idea, which has saved man from despair, has been the potent stimulus to two thousand years of endurance and hope. The Teutons gave us a healthy, sturdy, uncontaminated physique, honest bodies, and clean minds, the lack of which had made further progress impossible to the ancient world. The last is what made necessary the barbarian overthrow of Rome if the world was still to advance. The slowly progressing knowledge of the arts and handicrafts which we have seen passed down from Egypt to Babylonia, to Persia, Greece, and Rome, had not been acquired without heavy loss. The system of slavery which allowed the few to think, while the many were constrained to toil as beasts, had eaten like a canker into the heart of society. The Roman world was repeating the oft-told tale of the past and sinking into the lifeless formalism of which Egypt was the type. Man had become wise, but worthless. As though on purpose, to prove to future generations how utterly worthless, the Roman civilization was allowed to continue uninterrupted in one unneeded corner of its former domains. For over a thousand years, the successors of Theodosius and of Constantine held unbroken sway in the capital which the latter had founded. They only succeeded in emphasizing how futile their culture had become. The entire ten centuries that followed the overthrow of Rome had long been spoken of as the Dark Ages. But considering how infinitely darker those same ages must have become without the intervention of the Teutons, present criticism begins to protest against the term. All that was lost with the ancient world was something of intellectual keenness, something of artistic culture, quickly regained when man was once more ripe for them. What the Teutons had to offer, of infinitely greater worth, what they had developed in their cold northern forests was their sense of liberty and equality, their love of honesty, their respect for womankind. It is not too much to say that without these, any higher progress was and always will be impossible. In short, the Roman and Grecian races had become impotent and decrepit. The high density of man lay not with them, but with the younger race, for whom all earlier civilizations had but prepared the way. Who were these Teutons? Rome knew them only vaguely as wild tribes dwelling in the gloom of the great forest wilderness. 
in reality they were but the vanguard of vast races of human beings who through ages had been slowly populating all eastern europe and northern asia beyond the teutons were other aryans the slavs beyond these were vague non-aryan races like the huns content to direct their careers of slaughter against one another and only occasionally and for a moment flaring with red-fire beacons of ruin along the edge of the aryan world some at least of the teutonic tribes had grown partly civilized the germans along the rhine and the goths along the danube had been from the time of augustus in more or less close contact with rome germanicus had once subdued almost the whole of germany later emperors had held temporarily the broad province of dacia beyond the danube the barbarians were eagerly enlisted in the roman army during the closing centuries of decadence they became its main support they rose to high commands there were even barbarian emperors at last the intermingling of the two worlds thus became extensive and the teutons learned much of rome the goths whom theodosius permitted to settle within its dominions were already partly christian the period of invasion it was these same goths who became the immediate cause of rome's downfall theodosius had kept them in restraint his feeble sons scarce even attempted it the intruders found a famous leader in alaric and after plundering most of the grecian peninsula they ravaged italy ending in 410 with the sack of rome itself this seems to us perhaps a greater event than it did to its own generation the emperor of the west the degenerate son of theodosius was not within the city when it fell and the story is told that on hearing the news he expressed relief because he had at first understood that the evil tidings referred to the death of a favorite hen named rome the tale emphasizes the disgrace of the famous capital it had sunk to be but one city among many alaric's goths had been nominally an army belonging to the emperor of the east their invasion was regarded as only one more civil war besides the roman world might yet have proved itself big enough to assimilate and engulf the entire mass of this already half-civilized people its name was still a spell on them atolf the successor of alaric was proud to accept a roman title and become a defender of the empire he marched his followers into gaul under a commission to chastise the barbarians who were desolating it these later corners were the instruments of that more overwhelming destruction for which the goths had but prepared the way to resist alaric the roman legions had been withdrawn from all the western frontiers and thus more distant and far more savage tribes of the teutons beheld the glittering empire unprotected its pathways most alluringly left open they began streaming across the undefended rhine and danube their bands were often small and feeble such as earlier emperors would have turned back with ease but now all this fascinating world of wealth so dimly known and doubtless fiercely coveted lay helpless open to their plundering the vandals ravaged gaul and spain and being defeated by the goths passed on into africa 
the Saxon and Angles penetrated England and fought there for centuries against the desperate Britons, whom the Roman legions had perforce abandoned to their fate. The Franks and Burgundians plundered Gaul. Fortunately, the invading tribes were on the whole a kindly race. When they joyously whirled their huge battle-axes against iron helmets, smashing down through bone and brain beneath, their delight was not in the scream of the unlucky wretch within, but in their own vigorous sweep of muscle and the conscious power of the blow. Fierce they were, but not coldly cruel like the ancients. The conditions of the lower classes certainly became no worse for their invasion. It probably improved. Much the newcomers undoubtedly destroyed in pure wantonness, but there was much more that they admired, half understood, and sought to save. Beyond them, however, came a conqueror of far more terrible mood. We have seen that when the Goths first entered Roman territory, they were driven on by a vast migration of the Asiatic Huns. These wild and hideous tribes then spent half a century roaming through Central Europe ere they were gathered into one huge body by their great chief Attila, and in their turn approached the shattered region of the Mediterranean. Their invasion, if we are to trust the tales of their enemies, from whom alone we know of them, was incalculably more destructive than all those of the Teutons combined. The Huns delighted in suffering. They slew for the sake of slaughter. Where they passed, they left naught but an empty desert, burned and blackened and devoid of life. Crossing the Danube, they ravaged the Roman Empire of the East almost without opposition. Only the impregnable walls of Constantinople resisted the destruction. A few years later, the savage horde appeared upon the Rhine, and an enormous number penetrated Gaul. No people had yet understood them. None had even checked their career. The white races seemed helpless against this yellow peril, this scourge of God, as Attila was called. Goths and Romans, and all the varied tribes which were ranging in perturbed whirl through unhappy Gaul, laid aside their lesser enmities and met in common cause against the terrible invader. The Battle of Chalon, 451, was the most tremendous struggle in which Turanian was ever matched against Arian, the one huge bid of the stagnant, unprogressive races for Earth's mastery. Old chronicles rise into poetry at thought of that immeasurable battle. They figure the slain by hundred thousands. They describe the souls of the dead as rising above the bodies and continuing their furious struggle in the air. Attila was checked and drew back. Defeated, we can scarce call him, for only a year or so later we find him ravaging Italy. Fugitives fleeing before him to the marshes lay the first stones of Venice. Leo, the great pope, pleads with him for Rome. His forces, however, are obviously weaker than they were. He retreats. And after his death, his irresponsible followers disappear forever in the wilderness. The Period of Settlement Toward the close of this tumultuous fifth century, the various Teutonic tribes show distinct tendencies toward settling down and forming kingdoms 
amid the various lands they have overrun. The Vandals built a state in Africa, and from the old site of Carthage send their ships to the second sack of Rome. The Visigoths form a Spanish kingdom, which lasts over two hundred years. The Ostrogoths construct an empire in Italy from 493 to 554, and under the wise rule of the chieftain Theodoric, men joyfully proclaim that peace and happiness and prosperity have returned to earth. Most important of all, in its bearing upon later history, the Franks under Clovis begin the building of France. Encouraged by these milder days, the Roman emperors of Constantinople attempt to reclaim their old domain. The reign of Justinian begins, 527 to 565, and his great general Belisarius temporarily wins back for him both Africa and Italy. This was a comparatively unimportant detail, a mere momentary reversal of the historic tide. Justinian did for the future a far more noted service. If there was one subject which Roman officials had learned thoroughly through their many generations of rule, it was the set of principles by which judges must be guided in their endeavor to do justice. Long practical experience of administration made the Romans the great lawgivers of antiquity, and now Justinian set his lawyers to work to gather into a single code or digest all the scattered and elaborate rules and decisions which had place in their gigantic system. It is this code of Justinian, which, handed down through the ages, stands as the basis of much of our law today. It shapes our social world. It governs the fundamental relations between man and man. There are not wanting those who believe its principles are wrong. Whoever that man's true attitude toward his fellows should be, wholly different from its present artificial pose. But whether for better or for worse, we live today by Roman law. This law the Teutons were slowly absorbing. They accepted the general structure of the world into which they had thrust themselves. They continued its style of building and many of its rougher arts. They even adopted its language, though in such confused and awkward fashion that Italy, France, and Spain grew each to have a dialect of its own. And most important of all, they accepted the religion, the Christian religion of Rome. Missionaries venture forth again. Augustine preaches in England. Boniface penetrates the German wilds. Not be supposed that the moment a Teuton accepted baptism, he became filled with a pure Christian spirit of meekness and of love. On the contrary, he probably remained much the same drunken, roistering heathen as before. But he was brought in contact with noble examples in the lives of some of the Christian bishops around him. Great truths began to touch his mobile nature. He was impressed, softened. He began to think and feel. Given a couple of centuries of this, we really begin to see some very encouraging results. We realize that for once we are being allowed to study a civilization in its earlier stages, to be present almost at its birth, to watch the methods of the master builder in the making of a race. Gazing at similar developments in the days of Egypt and Babylon, we guessed vaguely that they must have been of slowest growth. 
Here at last one takes place under our eyes, and it does not need so many ages after all. There is no study more fascinating than to trace the slow changes stamping themselves ineradicably upon the Teutonic mind and soul during these misty, far-off centuries of turmoil. On the whole, of course, the sixth, seventh, and even the eighth centuries form a period of strife. The Teutons had spent too many ages warring against one another in petty strife to abandon the pleasure in a single generation. Men fought because they liked fighting, much as they play football today. Then, too, there came another great outburst of semite-religious enthusiasm. Muhammad started the Arabs on their remarkable career of conquest. THE MOHAMMEDAN OUTBURST Muhammad himself died, 632, before he had fully established his influence even over Arabia. His successors had practically to reconquer it. Yet within five years of his death, the Arabs had mastered Syria. They spread like some sudden, unexpected, immeasurable whirlwind. Ancient Persia went down before them. By 640, they had trampled Egypt underfoot and destroyed the celebrated Alexandrian library. They swept all over Africa, completely obliterating every trace of Vandal or of Roman. Their dominion reached further east than that of Alexander. They wrested most of its Asiatic possessions from the pretentious empire at Constantinople and reduced that exhausted state to a condition of weakness from which it never arose. Then, passing on through their African possessions, they entered Spain and overthrew the kingdom of the Visigoths. It was a storm whose end no man could measure, whose coming none could have foreseen. And then, just a century after Muhammad's death, the Arabs, pressing on through Spain, encountered the Franks on the plains of France. A thousand years had passed since Semitic Carthage had fallen before Arian Rome. Now, once again, the Semites, far more dangerous because in the full tide of their religious frenzy of their race, threatened to engulf the Aryan world. They were repulsed by the still sturdy Franks, under their great leader, Charles Martel, at Tours. The Battle of Tours was only less monumentous to the human race than that of Chalons. What the Arab domination of Europe would have meant? we can partly guess by looking at the lax and lawless states of northern Africa today. These fair lands, under both Roman and Vandal, had long been sharing the lot of Aryan Europe. They seemed destined to follow in its growth and fortune. But the Arab conquest restored them to Semitism, made Asia the seat from which they were to have their training, attached them to the chariot of sloth instead of that of effort. What they are today, all Europe might have been. Yet, with the picture of these fifth and sixth and seventh centuries of battle full before us, we are not tempted to glory over much, even in such victories as Tours and Chalons. We see war for what it has ever been the curse of man, the hugest hindrance to our civilization. While men fight, they have small time for thought, or art, or any soft or kindly sentiment. The survivors may, with good luck, develop into a stronger breed. They are, inevitably, more brutal. We thus begin to recognize just how necessary for human progress was the work 
Rome had been engaged in. By holding the world at peace, she had given humankind at least the opportunity to grow. The moment her restraining hand was shaken off, war sprang up everywhere. Not only do we find the inheritors of her territory fighting amongst themselves, they are exposed to the savagery of Attila, the fury of the Arabs. New bands of more distant Teutons come, ever pushing in amid their half-settled brethren, overthrowing them in turn. The Lombards capture northern Italy, only Venice remaining safe amid her marshes. The East Franks, that is, the semi-barbarians still remaining in the wilderness, master the more cultured West Franks, who hold Gaul. No sooner does civilization start up than it is trodden on. The Empire of Charlemagne At length there arose among the Franks a series of stalwart rulers, keen-eyed, penetrating somewhat, at least, into the meaning of their world, determined to have peace if they must fight for it. Charles Martel was one of these. Then came his son Pepin, who held out his hand to the Bishop of Rome, acknowledged that their vast civilizing influence saved them from the Lombards, and joined church and state once more in harmony. After Pepin came his son Charlemagne, whose reign marks an epoch of the world, the peace his fathers had striven for, he won at last, though only as they had done by constant fighting. He attacked the Arabs, and reduced them to permanent feebleness in Spain. He turned backward the Teutonic movement, marching his Franks into the German forests, and in campaign after campaign, defeating the wild tribes that still remained there. The strongest of them, the Saxons, accepted and enforced Christianity. Even the vague races beyond the German borders were so harried, so weakened, that they ceased to be a serious menace. Charlemagne had thus in very truth created a new empire. He had established at least one central spot, so hedged round by border dependencies that no later wave of barbarians ever quite succeeded in submerging it. The bones of the great emperor, in their cathedral sepulchre at Aix, have never been disturbed by an unfriendly hand. Paris submitted to no new conquest until over a thousand years later, when the nineteenth century had stolen the barbarity from war. It was no more than a just acknowledgment of Charlemagne's work when, on Christmas Day of the year 800, as he rose from kneeling at the cathedral altar in Rome, he was crowned by the Pope, whom he had defended, and hailed by an enthusiastic people as lord of a recreated Holy Roman Empire. In England also, the centuries of warfare among the Britons and the various antagonistic Teutonic tribes seemed drawing to an end. Egbert established the Heptarchy, that is, became overlord of all the lesser kings. Truly, for a moment, civilization seemed re-established. The arts returned to prominence. England could send so noteworthy a scholar as Alcuin to the aid of the great emperor. Charlemagne encouraged learning. Alcuin established schools. Once more, men sowed and reaped in security. The Roman peace seemed come again. End of section zero.